Welcome back to Shiloh Church in Jasper, Indiana, where we're doing our virtual church classroom we call Knowing God with Heart and Mind. That's right. It's that uh, regular visit to the Shiloh virtual classroom where we are presently studying The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, or Jack, and uh, this is episode 13, and we're about to look at chapter 12 of The Great Divorce. And uh, Bethany, my beautiful daughter, is here, and I'm Pastor Dan, and we are working together to help you find some of the really remarkable truths that are in this book. And so let's just dig right into chapter 12, Bethany. This is... Uh, uh, Probably one of my favorite characters uh, that we Sarah? meet. Yeah, Sarah. Yeah. She's pretty awesome. She is um, pretty awesome. So Lewis is with his sort of uh, spirit guide or, you know, uh, sort of elder who's come to help him find his way to the center of heaven, to God's presence. And, and they meet people along the way and observe their conversations. And now... There is a great angelic procession that is honoring this woman named Sarah Smith, who is uh, apparently someone who has saved many souls while she was on earth. And so while this saintly spirit is passing through the woods, she's encountering a ghost, which is what they call the ones who haven't quite made it there yet. From the gray town. Yeah. Uh, who was, in fact, her earthly husband. Yeah. And this is a really amazing conversation. Um, and it, it's like we talked about it the last uh, episode because because the way they talk to the ghosts is it's so, like, patient and forgiving and understanding and, and there's no judgment and they're not rebuttals to the complaints of the question they're just like truth in love you know and and this is this is a good quote this is this is kind of an amazing statement but this is i think one of the things that's always amazed me about jack in all of his writing is it's also very sensual um you know and i don't mean that necessarily in in a uh uh you know well, I do want to say romantic, but I don't want to say in a physical sense. I mean, he's sensual in that he he describes things with a with a certain lavishness. You know, like he says, he's a few men looked on her without becoming, in a certain fashion, her lovers. But it was the kind of love that made them not less true, but truer to their own wives. And I really, I I love that. I, that is an amazing statement. And, um, again, I, I think, you know, for a guy who was a bachelor most of his life and then found the greatest love he could have ever imagined, mm-hmm. uh, he got it. He, he really got it. So, so what do we know about Sarah Smith? And uh, who, who do you think that Lewis most likely mistakes her for? Uh-huh. Okay. So, Sarah is, like, just lovely. She's mm-hmm. a lovely person. She's really kind and warm-hearted, and, like, she's described as having a really big family in the afterlife, mm-hmm. like, in heaven. And it's not necessarily, like, her family members from Earth. It's everybody she ever touched on Earth, which is apparently a lot of people, because she was just nice 
well, n- nice is, you know, an overused, bland word, but she was incredibly kind to everyone she met, whether she met them for five seconds or knew them her whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love it. Like, she's like Snow White because, like, even the animals flock to her. Mm-hmm. Um, Why do birds <laughs> suddenly appear? So, um, every time. Go on. She's just, she's a really just lovely person. And I can think of people that I've met like that, where as soon as you meet them, you're like, gosh, I just want to be around you. Just like me. (laughs) They long to be close to you. Um, So my guess is that when Jack says, is it, um, he's probably thinking that she's married. I know that's what I thought the first time. That's I what read. I thought the first time I read it was, oh, he's got it like because well, because I think we and not and not for a not for any problematic reasons, we build her up in the same kind of way because she was a lovely, humble, faith-filled person. Yeah. And that's how the Sarah Smith appears to be, is just lovely and modest and And yet I, I think I'm, I'm going to agree and disagree with okay. you. I think that the conclusion we come to before we get to know her is that she's Mary because there's such a pervasive, even among non-Catholics, there's such a predominant sort of deification of her. Yeah. And so naturally, you figure if you're in heaven... Then uh, and a glorious woman comes by, surrounded by angels. Yeah. You, you just assume, and I, I think if I think this is Lewis's really subtle way of putting things right where Mary is concerned. I think what he's saying is, is you thought, as the author, you thought I was introducing you to Mary because naturally she's the queen of heaven and she's surrounded by with this entourage. But then you find out that she's just plain Jane Sarah Smith. Mm-hmm. Plain old Sarah Smith, who was not an angelic person on earth in the sense that birds flocked around her. But she was a real person whose life made her someone glorious mm-hmm. in heaven, mm-hmm. which is a much better way to think of Mary, in my opinion, is that it wasn't Mary's, uh, you know, like, like this is why, and, and I'm sorry, Catholic friends, I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. It's not that I want you to think that I think ill of, of this particular doctrine, but I don't support the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. I personally don't believe that she had to be born without sin in order for Jesus to cancel original sin. I think the essential reason that she's not born with original, or that she is born with original sin and not, you know, immaculately conceived, I think that's the essential part of how her son becomes our Savior. Um, Because it's canceled in his, and in his, in, uh, a divine nature, but let's not argue about that. The thing I want to point out is, is I think Sarah Smith is C.S. Lewis's Protestant Church of England way of saying Mary's really in a remarkable human being, but not because she was made the queen of heaven before she was even conceived, mm-hmm. but rather because she was a plain person like Sarah Smith who was so devoted to God 
and to loving others in the name of God, that that made her a queen in heaven. And so Sarah Smith. Mm-hmm. That's my interpretation. Yeah, I think that makes sense. You know, I just I all I know is that I would love for there to be cats and dogs and horses following me around in heaven. <laughs> But you'd also love it if you could have a pet velociraptor. Well, I mean, I, I didn't say it, but if there's a velociraptor following me around in heaven, that's fine, too. I've never met a velociraptor, though, and it says that the cats and dogs that are following her around are all the ones that she was kind to on Earth. So I, my odds aren't great if that's the case, because I've know, never met one. I think the irony is is that, you know, and, and we are wandering askew here, but... <laughs> But the irony is, is that some people's hell would be one where a velociraptor's <laughs> following you around, and some people's heaven apparently is one where a velociraptor wants to be your best friend. Well, it doesn't have to be a velociraptor; it could be another kind of dinosaur. You know, but personally, I'd I rather be friends cool. with a Diplodocus or or something like that, because you know. I mean. Velociraptors are really cool, though. Yeah. Well, All the raptor family is pretty cool. Let's move on. <laughs> Why does Lewis choose an ordinary name like Sarah Smith? Well, I think we already covered that. Because she's ordinary. Yeah. yeah. But talk about Matthew 19, verses 29 to 30 for a minute. Um, McDonald says fame in the country and fame on earth. Fame, I think it should be in this country, but I'm not sure that's like, right. Like in, in this, the country that they talk about in the book, that's heaven. Yeah. Yeah. So he says fame in the country and fame on earth are two quite different things. Uh, does earthly rank automatically translate into a inverse heavenly rank? So mm. let's look at nineteen Matthew 19. Yeah, so it says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. So, I'd say it's not necessarily 100% inversely related, but it sure implies that for the most part it is. Yeah, I think... I think what what I've always how I've always interpreted this concept is like through the 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 love of money yeah. is the root to all evil, and it's really important to say it's not the money that's evil. It's the that when you become infatuated when when you can't help, you know, when you're no longer in control of your life because you know, or, or God is no longer superb, supreme in your life. Then you know some other god has got you, and the god of money is that. And same thing happens with fame and power. You know. Well, I think all of those things come down to pride. I think it always comes back to where and what your pride is in. Right. Um, And that really is the essence of it all. You know, we've talked about that many times, but but you know, you can sum up the problem of sin real simply. It's it's when you're more important than God in mm-hmm. your life. Yeah. You got a problem. And I think that's really what the first and last is talking about here. If you put yourself first, then you're going to end so up. So it, it's possible for someone to be a famous movie star, mm-hmm. uh, a famous politician, or a famous author, or whatever. You know, it's possible to have fame and a following and still be so humble. Mm hmm that you 
are honored in heaven for your humility. Mm-hmm. But there's a great deal of temptation and risk involved with fame that the most humble person could begin to lose their discipline mm-hmm. and become vain. Yeah. So, you know. Um, but I don't think that um, that fame and power of any kind automatically means that you will be least in heaven. I think, yeah, it could set you up for a little more challenging times, but, like, I... This is not political at all, but um, Senator John McCain comes to mind. Mm-hmm. I don't know en- enough about his personal spiritual life to be able to say anything for certain, but he was a man I admired because, despite being, like, a career politician... There was quite a bit about him that seemed very humble, um, and and at least from my very distant point of view from him, very faithful. Uh, there have been so I think people, you know one of the most revered presidents of all of American history is Abraham Lincoln, and part of the reason people revi- re- re- revere him or, or honor him the way they do. Is because he was humble. Yeah. And and you know, he was modest and, and yet he was a strong leader and you know, and that's that's why he's so admired. So yeah, it happens. Yeah. It doesn't happen yeah. often. So no, but, uh, but I just don't wanna make it I don't want anyone to take away from this that we're saying if you have these things, heaven won't be that great for you. <laughs> well, you know and yet the more money and, and yeah. influence you have, the more at risk you are yes. for corruption. Absolutely. It just, it's a fact. And uh, so, you know, so Sarah is confronted by her earthly husband and a dwarf named Frank. Yeah. Who pulls Tragedian, an old school melodramatic actor who specializes in tragic roles. So by a chain, and and I do uh, I do want to uh, just say that I read that because right out of the book because that that is a term that I wasn't familiar with when when I read the book first time. So a tragedian is a melodramatic actor who specializes in tragic roles, and so you have this it's very this, Grecian this dwarf named Frank. Her husband is the dwarf named Frank, and he's pulling this thing around. Now, I think this is probably one of the toughest metaphors or or types that he presents in the book, but I think you can get there. So, how would you describe Frank's earthly character as it relates to his wife, Sarah? Oh my goodness, Frank was like a woe-is-me person. And thought it was all Sarah's fault, so like went out of his way to make her life awful on Earth. Because a lot of people who harbor lots of self-pity think that they will make themselves feel better by making other people feel worse. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, he spent a lot of uh, apparently quite a bit of their marriage trying to make her feel terrible. So what, what's the thing he's most concerned about now that he's reached the afterlife? Whether she's miserable in heaven because he's not there. <laughs> yeah. He's really just the worst. He's so appalled, you know. How could you be so happy yeah. without me? Yeah. 
You know, you know, this is like another variation of the hyacinth uh, bouquet that we talked yeah. about in the other episode. Yeah. You know? Because it's it's sort of the same complete delusion, you know, that that somehow everything you know they did was more important than the person. So this is where I said you're going to have to. I'm going to make you work hard because we've got to get this this particular uh, character portrait to make sense. So what's the relationship between Frank the dwarf? And Tradigian, uh, what's so hard for Frank to be? Why is it so hard for him to be free of the of this morose, yeah, tragic? So it's kind of interesting character. that I think it's really interesting that the Tradigian is the other half of it because that's a very Grecian, very um, yeah, it's a very Grecian idea, and it's kind of funny because this is almost like. This is more Roman, but this is almost like the idea of Janus, the god Janus, which was a two-faced god with two personalities, basically. And that's kind of what you're working with here is like a multiple personality situation where Frank himself is like Frank, the true Frank is the dwarf. And the reason he's a dwarf is because he keeps feeding this other personality and the more he feeds into the ego of this other personality, the bigger it gets and the smaller he gets. That's why he's a dwarf. Um, so he, and, and naturally this other personality, the tragedian, is self-pitying, self-loathing. Um, yeah, I, um, it's, it's funny. Um, I remember a long, long time ago, uh, I heard the term, you know, martyr complex mm-hmm. applied to someone I knew and by someone else I knew, you know. And and I thought, you know, um, people can lose their soul to their delusion. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like they can actually forget who they are. Mm-hmm. Because they're so wrapped up in this self pity and and you know and, and and I was just thinking, gosh, I know some people like that. Well, and I don't, I don't disagree with you. Um, I think personality is a really interesting thing because some people think personality is set in stone from a certain age. I'm not one. I'm not of the school that that. I'm not of that school of thought. Um, I think personality is malleable. And I think that there may be something within the within someone's personality from the start that makes them more likely to have, like, a martyr complex or to be this self-pitying kind of character. Um, and it evolves over time to where they... They don't necessarily lose themselves. They just feed that portion of themselves more and more to where it's it's the most significant part of their personality. If that makes any sense. Yeah, I know. I was just thinking about something you remember, though you were a lot younger at the time. But I had a run-in with somebody 
that so blindsided me that when I finally realized what hit me, it scared me. And it was somebody who was definitely diagnosably a person with borderline personality disorder and a classic textbook version of it. Like, mm-hmm. like if I read, you know, if you look it up on the Internet, this person was that. And it blindsided me. I didn't know what I was dealing with. And by the time I was kind of caught in this thing, I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, I got to get away from this. I got to get away from this person. I can't help them. Um, I can't. I'm trying to be who I think I am. And you talk about trying to hit a moving target. I was in college getting a degree in psychology at the time. Yeah, and and it was like, yikes. <laughs> yep. But so I'm bringing that up because, and, and by the way, friends, it just means that it doesn't matter how old you are, there are always new lessons to mm-hmm. learn in life. Um, you don't stop growing up when you get to a certain age. You're always learning new things and you're always growing up. But that being said, I you know, so so some of these characters have personality disorders. Oh, yeah. I mean... So the question is, and and I'm not going to get it. C.S. Lewis writes fantastically about the doctrine and and stuff. I'm not going to go there right now. All I'm saying is, is here's a person who's been given a chance to go to heaven, Mm -hmm. and their personality disorder, which could be like the little lizard that needs to be executed. Yeah is holding them back. So remember the last episode, friends, that we, you know, the guy had a lizard that the angel said, I can kill that for you. Mm-hmm. Only an angel can, you know, and the guy had to decide whether he's willing to give that up or not. Mm-hmm. But when he did, it, he was set it was free. amazing, yeah. So so now we get this other person. It's, it's the same kind of thing, only the lizard has outgrown his shoulder and become who he thinks he is. Mm-hmm. And he's turning into the lizard. Mm-hmm. And basically, yeah. the 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 tragedian is saying, "Hey, be all right with me if you just off this guy because he's getting to be a nuisance because he's the only recollection I have of who I used to be before I became everything that this personality disorder has made me." Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think concept. the thing with this guy is that he has allowed himself to be overrun by. He's fed literally fed that part of his personality to the point where it's overrun him so this isn't this conversation isn't at all to say that if someone's suffering a personality disorder or any kind of mental disease because they are diseases just like physical ailments Mm -hmm. this is so not in any way a conversation about how mental disorder will stop you from entering heaven this guy we're not covering the doctrine on this one this guy in this story that we're looking at right now has definitely let even if it's not a personality disorder he's let dysfunctional thinking alter him in a way to where literal like in in the case of this story literally that part of his personality his ego essentially has taken over everything else well and if i haven't said this yet in this book study maybe it's time to make sure i say it now this is a parable mm-hmm. that Lewis wrote 
and it's about life, mm-hmm. not about death. He mm-hmm. says that in the beginning. He says, I don't want you to see this as, as a, a treatment of what I think heaven's going to be like. I'm trying to tell you something about what life should be like. And I'm going to take it a step further because he would say this in, in another context, in another way, in another written, you know, another book or something. But what, but what you need to understand is, is this book or this story is a reminder to us that once we become Christians, we've already begun our eternal life. Mm-hmm. That, you know, once you're born again, you're born into an eternal life. Which means that whether you're alive in the flesh on earth as you understand your existence right now, or alive in the afterlife as, you're, as you will come to understand your existence, the one thing that's constant is, is you become eternal when you become a Christian or when you become a follower of Christ and, and are saved by God's grace and born again. So that being said, what's keeping you from entering into heaven right now? at least in your mind and in your in your interaction. And so it's a parable. He's mm-hmm. he's saying on one hand, um, why are you waiting to be set free? We can you know we can squish the, the, the lizard right now. We can we can feed the dwarf and and starve the egomaniac and that can happen right now and your life can be far richer than you can ever imagine. And oh by the way, if you wonder what a rich life looks like after you get here, look at Sarah Smith. You know, and, and I mean that's the gist of the story. Mm-hmm. He, he's saying, don't waste your life in the gray world, in the gray town. You know, become fully alive now. Yeah. And so we're not talking about personality disorders and how they might prevent you from going to heaven. What we're talking about is, is if you get this parable, which I think you will if you're fairly healthy mentally and spiritually and emotionally, right? So if you're getting what you're hearing right now, then the only thing you have to do is ask yourself why you're not living in the sun instead of in the gray. Yeah. You know, and and if you're not tracking with this, you're probably not listening. So, you know, and if you know somebody who wouldn't track with this, then you just have to pray that somehow God squishes their lizard so that they can become alive, you know, mm-hmm. and and just let God take care of how that happens because it might be through cognitive therapy. It might be through uh, uh, drugs for for uh, brain illness or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why people might be sick in their mind and and God can squish the lizard in a variety of ways. And all we want to do is pray that that's what happens. So just a little aside there because I think there's always a possibility somebody is listening to this and they're trying to figure out how to redeem or how God redeems a situation that is so far beyond uh, anyone's like ability to, to cope. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm living with an alcoholic. I'm living with a personality disorder. I'm living with depression or whatever. And, and it's like, you know, there's not much you can do for those people, but what you can pray is, is God squishes the lizard and don't think God won't do it. Mm-hmm. So... You know, and, and the worst thing you can do is try to figure out how God's going to do it and then tell God to do it that way. Best thing to do is just keep asking for it and watch. Okay, moving right along. So the Tragedian's persona was created by Frank's desire to make others feel guilty and then extract pleasure from their guilt. Yeah. Why do people create alter egos 
and uh, or new personas to define them. What are the dangers of continuing to act out the persona around others, and how hard is it to give up? So why do people try to be something other than who they are naturally or organically? This is like such a psychological discussion today. Sure. I <laughs> love it. Um, well, I think that... Um, creating an alter ego is definitely defense mechanism so you think that's what happens with a lot of these actors you know we have one from I, owensboro that we like to pick on um because it's almost he's one of those that appears to be someone who doesn't really know who he is anymore yeah or who he ever was yeah he's just the characters i do i do think that people use it as a defense mechanism and i could see actors doing it just because it's too um, personal and raw to to be themselves. Um, I mean, you hear about actors who like get drunk in the car on the way to the red carpet because they're so nervous about it. Mm-hmm. So I think um, I think definitely not just actors, but people create the um, their whatever they you know their ideal person they think that whatever group of people want to see um, to protect themselves from lots of things, but, you know, protect themselves from feelings of inadequacy. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, like, I can say this because I'm a girl. Um, girls who self... who who are very, like, um, self-deprecating mm-hmm. and make lots of jokes about their appearance and stuff, and it's real funny, usually don't actually feel that way. Right. Um, and I've done it. Um, I, you know, I think sometimes you do it because you, if you make the joke first, then you feel like you'll be fine because you've, you've already made the joke. Somebody else can't make a joke about you. Right. Um, so if you make a joke about your big body part, yeah, then you don't have to worry about somebody else insulting it and that actually hurting you. Right. Um, so I think that, so I would actually argue that, a lot of times things like this come from a place of discomfort and and wanting to protect yourself. So I don't think they start bad. Right. Um, and I think it's okay in certain situations to, you know, def- all defense mechanisms can be problematic. Right. If they're overused, that's definitely a cognitive behavioral conversation. But I think that there's nothing wrong with insulating yourself a little when you know you're going into a rough situation. Sure. So... Like, if I know that I'm going to be around some college friends that are the kind of college friends that you would say, friends with air quotes, then you might in- I might insulate a little and be prepared. But the- if that's the only personality I'm showing to the world and it's taking o- that persona is taking over everything else about me, I think that's when it becomes problematic, when that becomes well, it, you. So it just occurred to me that, that I do this sometimes. I, from time to time, I will say to the family or to work, <laughs> staff or whatever... I got to go be Pastor Dan. Yeah. And what I'm saying is, is that sometimes it's not so much about me being Dan as much as it is people need me to be Pastor Dan. Yeah. And and that's okay because there's not much separation. Boy, we learned that in the staff meeting this afternoon. There's not much separation between Dan the person and Dan the pastor. Mm-hmm. But there are times when I'm doing my job 
in a way that is more about being Pastor Dan than about mm-hmm. being Dan. And yeah. like, say, when I'm doing a wedding or something. And that's more about me being the, doing the priestly role of being a pastor. And all that's fine. So we all have personas that we adopt. Yeah, I mean, I uh, we have a friend who's an airline pilot. Yeah. And sometimes he has to be Captain So and so because he's about to tell people, yeah. you know, all he's the safety put on his things. Captain voice. And so he puts on that voice and he does that job. But then again, I could be having lunch with him and talking about his week and mm-hmm. he can say, I saw something amazing the other day from yeah. the cockpit, you know, and whatever. And still the same person, but there's something that people need from him yes. at a certain point yeah. where he puts on that persona. So so personas aren't a bad thing. No, and I, I can, it's when we lose sight of who we are because we'd rather be the persona. We're doing so much online these days that I can't remember where I say things. Yeah. I think I talked about this a little like like pe- people people have their work persona their wor- like so you know like when I'm at work this w- this past couple weeks we've been making phone calls out the wazoo yeah and I'm not a phone call person but I have a phone call voice that's right like I have my phone voice when I talk to patrons um, and I definitely I know that I have a a counseling session voice right, right. Um, like when I'm talking to students. In a, and and it's even different from talking to them in the cafeteria. Boy, when, that is so true. I, you know, when I do counseling, you're you like drop an octave. Like it's much slower. Like. Well, and, and it's it's hard for me anyway. It's because under those circumstances, it's really important that I'm not Dan. Yeah. That I am the counselor. Exactly. And I have a certain set of guidelines that I'm trying to operate yep. within. Yep. For the benefit of this person. So so it's still Dan because Dan loves them. But and, and Dan loves them so much that he is dropping who he is yes. and putting it aside so he can be who they need him to be in that yeah, moment. Exactly. So again, persona personas are not a bad thing. Yeah, because like in a situation like that, you need your personality to be on the back burner because it's not about you. Yeah. Um yeah. so yeah, I'm I, I hope we're not getting off track, but I feel oh, like... Oh, yeah, we're way off track. Well, I just... With the question about what's problematic about personas, I just want to say, not everything about personas is bad. If you're in a career where you need to act a certain way for that job, that's a persona that you need, and it's important. Right. I think that where it becomes a problem is if that's the only persona you have ever. <laughs> One of my favorite sort of... I, I didn't invent this, um, but I've always thought it's funny that when you when you're watching TV and like the American Freight comes on, a guy comes on and he goes, "This week only, you know, in Evansville." Yeah, if you and talk like that all the time, that's problematic. <laughs> you kind of wonder if that guy goes home and says, "Hi, honey, I'm home. What's for supper? How are the kids? What's the, you know?" And I think and, he probably goes home and drinks like honey lemon tea. Yeah. <laughs> And and so we would really feel like there was something wrong with that yes. that announcer guy if that was how he was all the time, and that and means that's basically bringing us back to yes. the tragedian. This is a that, person who's become who he thinks he has, like he's become the person persona. So much emphasis has been put on that protective shell mm-hmm. that it's it's dwarfing him literally. Um, to the point where that persona is all he is, and it's a bad persona. So, like the actor from Owensboro is basically thinking that people only love him when he's so and so. Right. Yeah. You know. Um, 
if they yeah. knew the real me, they wouldn't like me. And I think when you get to that point, then it is problematic um, because you're you've lost your, you know, you, well you've lost a lot of your personality. Like, if the only way we can identify that person is through whatever the most recent role they're in is, then who is that person actually? You don't know anything. Like, the personality is gone. And with this guy, with Frank, Frank is, like, he's being dwarfed (laughs) by this really negative personality. So, I'm going to try to bring us around here because there's another truth that's that's glaring Mm -hmm. off of this page right now. And Mm -hmm. the truth is that... As sinners, we're living a persona, and God has in mind for us to be who we really are. Mm -hmm. That's me talking, not Jack. Mm -hmm. And yet, this is what I think of when I read what Jack is writing in this book. He's saying the thing that happens, and this is going to bring us to the next question. I'm going to jump one to the question about Sarah. So, uh, I'm looking at seven, and, Mm -hmm. and basically... What Jack is saying is that the whole journey to heaven is a journey home. It's a journey to who you really are, yeah. who God made you to be. And so even Sarah entered heaven and had to make it all the way home. Mm-hmm. And now we're seeing Sarah having gone home and come back to see if she can re- bring her husband because that's the scenario, that's the gist of this whole story, is these people like McDon- George McDonald, they're making a, tra- a difficult journey back to the place where they can pick up these people that they're tasked with trying to bring home. So this whole thing is about going home to who you really are, which means that all of us carry a certain persona, a certain self-perception mm-hmm. that God says, you know, that's not really all of who you are. That's just what you think you are. But I see you as you really are, and you'll know you've made it all the way home when you see you the way I see you. Isn't that awesome? Mm-hmm. So, Sarah, early in the chapter, Sarah's first action is to ask Frank's forgiveness. Yeah. And, you know, what do we later learn that she's asking forgiveness for? Well, she's... She asked forgiveness for not loving him like he needed to be loved. Like, she basically says that she didn't truly love him. She loved him because she was needy and vulnerable, and he filled that spot for her, basically. Um, So she is apologizing because she feels like she wasn't a very good wife in terms of her love for him. So she's describing what we would call a... um, uh, 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 codependency. Yeah, I mean, you know. yeah. Yeah. Um, and so then he gets really... Well, you didn't ask about that, did you? About his reaction? No, that's exactly the next question. Okay. So what's his answer? He gets really mad because she says that, like, that it doesn't... Not that it doesn't matter, but, like, that now that they're in heaven, she doesn't need him anymore. And she feels complete. She feels wholly loved and in love with Jesus and that they don't need each other anymore. And I think it's really interesting that he gets mad because she's not saying, like, Frank, I don't want you here. 
She's just saying, like, we don't need each other in the way that we were codependent. Mm -hmm. So, like, I think she would be really happy for him to be there with her. Um, And that they might have a more true form of love. But he hears it and is like, oh, you don't need me anymore? And goes right back to that self-pitying, you know, (laughs) just... Well, you pretty much answered eight, so... Okay. Sarah smiles beautifully and explains that in the afterlife, there is no such thing as need. And as a result, she and Frank can truly love one another. Yeah. So heaven seems to be a place where there are no longer any needs. So how will we know what to do, how to function? What will we pursue? Will it matter? Read Revelation 7, (laughs) verses 16 and 17. Well... We're not to Revelation 7 yet in Bible study. That's right. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not be down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Yeah. So the tragedian overreacts to this news, claiming that He wishes Sarah were dead at his feet. And in response, Sarah laughs and counsels him to rid himself of the tragedian. A tragedian. I know, that's so tricky. Well, it's tragedy. Yeah, but but for some reason, tragedian is just a Who is speaking for him with a dramatic yet self-destructive attitude. So how does Frank respond to her laughing? How can laughter, like fear, help someone step outside of themselves and see matters from a different angle? Hmm. Well, I mean, I guess that was a lot of questions. It was. I kind of jumped, you know, right into the whole question. (laughs) Um... Well, obviously, Frank is not real thrilled that she's laughing because he's self-pitying and, you know. Um, So he doesn't like that she's being so honest. Um, Here's here's what I would say. Okay. All right. And I've I've encountered uh, tragedians in my ministry career for sure and in previous of that as well but but as a mature adult and a maturing christian i've encountered people like that and it's been really difficult to hold back the laughter and here's why because if i laugh out loud they're going to immediately be wounded because they're going to know that i'm not taking them as seriously as they're taking themselves and yet sometimes people need to know that you cannot take them seriously yeah no matter how badly they need to be taken seriously. They're taking themselves so seriously that they can't, they need every, to put it another way, they are so wrapped up in themselves that they just naturally assume that everybody else is going to be wrapped up in them too. And when you laugh them off, you're basically saying, you know what? I don't need you. Mm -hmm. I, I don't need, you know, there's, and that's what she's just said. Yeah. She said, I don't need you. I love you, and I want you to feel the love of God. Yeah. But I don't need you. Well, there's, there's nothing about who you are that I need to be okay. 
and that's a big change for her and it's 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 terrifying terrifying for him to hear that because he's counting on that that's the only thing that makes him thrive and survive in his strange weird world is that he thinks that her dependency on him that's why when he got there he said you know uh it must have been horrible for you here without me you know like Mm -hmm. Now, where I think he differs from the lady we said was kind of like a hyacinth is yeah. that Sarah's laughing does seem to have a positive effect. Yeah. Because it breaks him down a little. And to the point where he kind of is like trying not to laugh, too. And as he's trying not to laugh, he starts growing yeah. bigger again. Um, so I think she breaks down his defenses. We we're talking about defense mechanisms. She gets through it, and because of that, he starts to see like, oh. Well, I mean, that's what comedy is all about. Yeah. Ninety-nine percent of good comedy is us laughing at people doing the things that we would be embarrassed to do. You know, um, if I'm walking, uh, you know, if I'm walking at church, or you know, like if I if I'm walking up the steps. To where the pulpit is, and I trip on my robe and fall, mm-hmm. people are going to laugh at me and I'm going to be embarrassed. But if I were watching a movie or a TV show where the preacher is walking up the stairs and he trips over his stole and falls on his face, I would laugh out loud because that's funny. Mm-hmm. So why is it different when it's me playing the role? It's because I'm doing something serious And I am meant to be taken seriously. And in the moment, I'm taking myself seriously and my role seriously. And I've just interjected something that is humiliating into the mix. Which, by the way, if you've ever gone to a church service with me in it, you know I don't take myself that seriously. And if I tripped and fell up the stairs, I'd be the first one to belly laugh about it. Not I'm not saying that makes me awesome or anything. I'm saying that that's probably why the dwarf begins to grow because he sees himself in the proper light and realizes he's pretty humorous, you know. So what's the number one lesson from from chapter 12? It's probably don't take yourself so seriously. Mm -hmm. It's not about you. It never was. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, it is about you having the fullest version of who you are by becoming the person God made you to be. Mm-hmm. And that person's going to be full of laughter and joy. Okay. I think we covered it. Yeah. And I think I think this one's a pretty important one because I think it's the only chapter that, like, the characters that they observe carry over into the next one. That's so right. So Frank and Sarah are not done talking. Yep. So it ends with him laughing with her, and you don't know what happens, but good news. We get to find out more. (laughs) And you know what? We'll find out the next time. So thanks for listening, and we hope you've been blessed. I want to let you know that we will uh, wrap up this uh, episode, this series of episodes on The Great Divorce in the next two episodes. So we're going to go from, this will be episode 14 will be next, and episode 15 will be the last. Mm -hmm. So just heads up. 
Because there's only two chapters left of the book. That's right. So we got two more chapters to do over the next two weeks. So that means at least we're going to post them every week. You know, like if, if you're a regular real-time listener, these have been coming out every Thursday. So the next two weeks will be the last two episodes for a while because we're going to take a little summer break. And uh, COVID-19 has, has worn us all out, and we're going to take a little rest. So. Yeah. Anyway, thank you for listening. As always, please contact us. Let us know if you're being blessed. Write us an email. Uh, say something on Facebook. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever. Um, our online presence is bigger now than it's ever been, and and so there's all kinds of of opportunities for you to uh, communicate with us. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, we just want to say God bless you. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.